Gresham College presents Docklands, the extension of London's financial centre by Amelia C. Fawcett, CBE, Vice Chairman, Morgan Stanley International Limited. It's indeed a great pleasure and honour to be here. Uh, in times gone by, it would have taken me several hours to get here from Canary Wharf. Even in the 1980s, my colleagues told me it could take well over an hour to get here. How times have changed uh, and how the area has been developed and become a source of inspiration and interest to urban planners, politicians, and businesses from around the globe. But what I wanted to do today in starting my talk was to read a clipping from the Times. That grand and magnificent work, which is now to become the receptacle of a great portion of our national wealth, and which, if we consider the stupendous scale on which it has been planned, the speed with which it has been executed, and the accommodation it must afford our commerce is an object of universal aspiration. The only catch is that this article was written in 1802 when the West Lindia docks were built. If I read an article from about the Canary Wharf development from a more recent issue of the Times, which I won't, it would have sounded very similar in the description of the scale of the development, the potential for the future, and the importance to the nation's commerce. So I think it's fair to say that the more things change, the more they actually stay the same, and that what's going on today in the Docklands really is only a change in form, not substance. So what do we mean when we talk about the Docklands? Some people use the term to refer to the five boroughs, East London boroughs, of Tower Hamlets, Newham, Southwark, Lewisham, and Greenwich. Today, the 71-acre development of Canary Wharf, with its skyline and shopping malls, is often considered to be the Docklands. However, for purposes of today, I prefer to use the area covered by the London Docklands Development Corporation, or LDDC as it's known for short. This is an area of approximately eight and a half square miles from three boroughs, Tower Hamlets, Newham, and Southwark. It's bounded by Canning Town in the north, City Airport in the east, the City of London in the west, and Greenwich in the south. And it's an area rich in history and association with commerce. Indeed, today, as in the 19th century, three themes are repeated and characterize this area. First, risk-taking and confidence. Second, a role as a commercial center. And third is international links and trade. Now, the area north of the Thames opposite Greenwich has been inhabited since the Middle Ages, though in fits and starts, given this low-lying area of meadows and pastureland was subject to flooding. With the erection of windmills in the 17th century, the land was drained properly, but it wasn't until almost 200 years later that the development of the area began in earnest. In, in 1799, Parliament passed the West India Dock Act, which was the first time a parliamentary act was used for municipal development. If you think about it, this actually was a form of public-private partnership, or the private finance initiative, an act of Parliament to create something of value, but the punters are expected to pay for it. Today, we have the Jubilee Line extension, which has done so much for the growth and the success of the Docklands, even the railroads of days gone by were funded in a similar way. So it's really no surprise that the government of William Pitt expected the West India merchants to buy shares in a new company created by the Act, and so they did, by providing the staggering initial capital of half a million pounds to pay for the construction of the docks. 
At last, they would have sufficient storage for their own cargo and trade and dedicated facilities for unloading and loading their own business. But let's be clear. These men were merchants, and they intended to make a profit by charging for the unloading and storing of goods. William Jessup, a great early engineer, probably best known as the engineer who constructed the Grand Union Canal between London and the Midlands, was commissioned to design and construct the docks. They were one of, if not the, largest civil engineering projects of the day, as the Times enthusiasm indicated. In 1800, Prime Minister William Pitt attended the laying of the foundation stone, and two years later, in 1802, Jessup's masterpiece was finished. The docks were an instant success. This was not surprising, really, given that the period before their construction was characterized by overcrowding, long delays, lack of storage facilities, and high losses. Indeed, some estimates are that as much as half a million pounds a year, another staggering amount, was lost from delays, fire, and theft, including one-fiftieth of all sugar imported. I think this helps explain why the investment of such a large amount of money made good commercial sense to the West India merchants. With the success of the docks came additional investors and the expansion of trade to all parts of the British Empire. The names of the various docks in the area still are a testament to the global nature of the trade serviced from here. West India docks, East India docks, Canary Wharf, the Quebec dock, the Russia dock, the Norway dock. By the end of the last century, it was the world's largest port, stretching from the upper docks of St. Catherine by Tower of London, past Surrey and commercial, Surrey commercial docks, through the East and West India docks to the Royal docks and Barking. And it was alive with activity and dynamism, constant noise, people shouting, big ships, small ships, a forest of tall masts, and everything done by time and tide, a clear rhythm to the day. This was an area that enjoyed a unique economic lifestyle based on the growth and prosperity of traditional port activities, including ship repair, heavy engineering, food processing, warehousing, and distribution. Related industries grew up based on the import of raw material, tobacco, timber, and skins. By the mid-30s, when the docks were at their peak, more than 35 million tons of cargo were being handled each year, carried by 55,000 ship movements and served by more than 10,000 lighters. Lighters were small boats that carried goods from ships to the docks so that the enterprising East Londoners wouldn't have to pay a fee to the dock owners. Overall, about 100,000 men were dependent on the economy of the docks for employment. Sadly, however, over the next 30 to 40 years, the docks would decline dramatically. During the Second World War, extensive damage was inflicted by persistent and heavy bombing. After the war, a combination of the effects of containerization, which still is how things are generally shipped today, the rise of mechanization and industrial unrest saw the economy of the Docklands decline still further. By 1981, unemployment in the area was 18%, compared to a national average of a little over 7%. 10,000 jobs had been lost in the last a previous three years alone, and over 60% of the area was derelict, vacant, or underused. It was in 1991 that the decision was taken to create the LDDC. This meant that people effectively had decided that early concerted action would find a solution to stem the economic decline and, with luck, foster a renaissance. 
and in many respects, past, was prologue, as the redevelopment of the Docklands, characterized by the growth of Canary Wharf in particular, has shown remarkable similarities to the rise of the West India Docks in 1802. And once again, the Docklands would become the focus for and reflection of confidence, risk-taking, commerce, and international trade. Today's spectacular development of the Docklands, from the mixed-use industrial park at Cody Road to the centerpiece of Canary Wharf, was not a foregone conclusion. A raft of ideas were proposed for the regeneration of the Docklands, including one, grassing it over, two, establishing a zoo, and three, building a prison. And there are some days at Canary Wharf when I wonder whether we haven't achieved the latter two in any event. Although physically close as the crow flies to the center of London, the Docklands, inherited by the LDDC in 1981, was isolated both physically and emotionally from the rest of London. There was a widespread perception, in part because of the peninsulas that make up the Docklands, that the area was far removed from the heart of the capital. It was difficult to get to, given poor roads and lack of public transport. Long-standing local residents tell stories of London taxicabs refusing fares to the Docklands. Ever resourceful, East Londoners apparently would tell taxis to take them to the Wapping police station, believing that drivers would be less inclined to refuse passengers with police business. Social deprivation, poor housing, and bleak prospects for education and employment also blighted the Docklands. An area that was once commercially vibrant was slowly and quietly slipping into near-terminal decline. Undaunted, the LDDC created a master plan to regenerate the area and attract new businesses and residents. It wasn't until the mid-1980s that the potential scale of the Docklands development was appreciated. At that time, Olympian York, the multi-billion dollar Canadian real estate developer with global interests and controlled by the Reichmans, and a number of substantial investors, including American Express, Citigroup, Credit Suisse, and my own firm, Morgan Stanley, identified a need and saw an opportunity. The need stemmed from the failure of the Corporation of London, sorry, to provide sufficiently large and sophisticated modern buildings at the time to accommodate the needs of a rapidly changing financial services industry. By the mid-'80s, it was becoming increasingly clear that more and more business would be done electronically and principle to principle rather than on the floor of exchanges. And these growing financial services firms were beginning to trade many more securities than eurobonds, gilts, and UK equities. Debt and equity instruments from around the world, as well as futures options and other derivative instruments, would trade through London with investors from around the world. If this was the future, Buildings with large floor plates for extensive trading floors would be needed, and the average historic building in the city would not be adequate, particularly given stringent building regulations and a slow planning process. A modern development canary wharf, which at the time was envisioned to be a Wall Street on the water, with more flexible building parameters than the City of London, was the only potential option at the time. So in addition to tax incentives, such as tax allowances for both investors and developers after the area was declared an enterprise zone, we and several others undertook to build a building to our own specification. Today, we have four trading floors, which total 136,000 square feet of space, 
which is equivalent to about nine football fields. Despite the attractiveness of other areas in London, we've decided to stay in Canary Wharf given our investment, the relative attractiveness of cost, and the flexibility Canary Wharf still gives us to expand and grow. Given the potential scale and nature of prospective tenants, the proposed Canary Wharf development generated a strong case for a level of telecommunications and uh, transport infrastructure which nobody in Docklands, let alone the government, had ever contemplated. Moreover, the government was perfectly clear that it had no intention of funding this level of investment. Sounds a bit like the West India merchants. So private investment drove the development for the most part, and between 1981 and 1988, 4.4 billion pounds of private monies were invested in the development of this area. The West India merchants would be proud. In the end, the government has contributed 1.86 billion pounds in grants to the Docklands, which has helped to generate more than 7 billion pounds of private investment. 75% of which has come from abroad. Apart from the three billion pounds in Canary Wharf from Canada, the US, France, Switzerland, and Finland, investment has also come from Japan, Kuwait, Qatar, South Africa, and Sweden. Sweden alone has contributed more than 760 million pounds. Just as in 1802, I think the sums are staggering. In addition, firms from the Far East, the Netherlands, and Denmark have invested in housing throughout the Docklands. The breadth of all of this investment mirrors the international nature of the business now conducted in the Docklands generally and in Canary Wharf in particular, just as it mirrors the international nature of the business in the original docks themselves. Morgan Stanley's employee population is just one example of this internationalism. We have 5,000 employees on the wharf, and they represent more than 90 nationalities, and they speak more than 80 languages. I'm reminded of this every day as I go up and down in the lift or get a cup of coffee and don't recognize most of the languages that are being spoken. Today, in, in, in addition to attracting business from elsewhere in London, Docklands continues to generate a great deal of interest from around the world, from planners and politicians to tourists. In the last 17 years, many planners and politicians from the continent, North America, and the Far East have visited the area, eager to find out how the area's transformation has been achieved. So what do they see today that they would not have seen 15 years ago? They would see a thriving area that mixes commerce, industry, and retail businesses with residential property. The area now is a home to a wide variety of industries, from financial services to media and technology, from accounting and law to manufacturing, retail, and other leisure businesses. Given the prominence of Canary Wharf in the Docklands, both physically and emotionally, the financial services industry is perhaps the best known. This isn't surprising given that the financial services firms account for 25% of all employees in the, that eight and a half mile area of the Docklands. Some of the la largest financial services firms in the world have established European or global headquarters in Canary Wharf, including Barclays Capital, Citigroup, Credit Suisse, HSBC, Lehman Brothers, State Street, and my own Morgan Stanley. With their arrival came professional and support services, law firms, accounting firms, and technology firms. And this has encouraged the arrival of other businesses, such as pubs, hotels, health spas, and the ubiquitous coffee bars. 
We now have even the single regulator for all financial services firms, the Financial Services Authority, as a next-door neighbor. How similar to the growth of the ancillary industries to support the shipping businesses of the West India docks. Interestingly, in 1985, the common expectation of most city property agents was that something big would indeed happen in Canary Wharf, but they thought it would be a center, a small center, for providing support services. Little did they know it would become a competing financial center. But the similarities between the Docklands of today and yesterday do not stop with the growth of ancillary services. I've mentioned three themes that we'd seen in the past and today, risk-taking, commercial center, vital role in the UK economy, and international links and trade. So having given some of the historical context, let me turn now to these three themes. First, risk-taking. As we've seen, the Docklands describes the historical use of the area, sea travel and trade, both of which are inherently risky. Investing in ships and cargo was a form of speculation. The payoffs could be handsome, but the risks were real and significant. As many ships, their crew and cargo were lost. Sinkings in the English Channel and elsewhere last winter, even just last week, serve as a reminder that even in this age of high technology, shipment by sea brings hazard and that ships can be lost in areas that are well-traveled and familiar. As a center associated with the shipment of goods, the Docklands has occupied a timeless place in pr the process of taking risk, and with it has experienced both success and loss. Risk-taking requires confidence, and that confidence is reflected in the fact that considerable investments have been made in the Docklands, beginning with the opening of the West India Docks. But as we saw earlier, these were widely considered the greatest civil engineering projects of the day and as such reflected the confidence UK merchants had in their ability to engage in commerce effectively and profitably. More recently, the development of Canary Wharf clearly exemplifies such risk-taking and confidence. Olympian Yorks, as I said, run by the Reichman and the largest investor in Canary Wharf, went into administration in the economic and property slump of 1992 and lost Canary Wharf. They came out of administration a year, a year later, were run by a consortium of banks, and in the end, the Reichmans bought back the now profitable Canary Wharf. Their risk has paid off. Canary Wharf is an undoubted success, combining state-of-the-art construction and large-scale buildings. Indeed, it's these key building features which until recently distinguished the wharf from the square mile. In fact, the development at Canary Wharf has helped cause the city description to be decoupled from geography and linked more closely to the entire financial services industry in London. This is very similar to the development of Wall Street. Very few financial services firms are still located on Wall Street, having moved to other parts of New York City, but they're still referred to as Wall Street firms. Old habits die hard. More than physical development itself, the business currently conducted on the wharf is about risk-taking and confidence. Where once we traded in goods and services from exotic locations, we now trade in securities and services. Indeed, many of the securities traded and services offered are actually described as exotic securities because of their complexity. And the role of derivatives, as these products are normally called, has become increasingly important over the last 20 years to a wide range of companies, financial institutions, and public sector companies, 
on a scale no one could have predicted 20 years ago. The UK is the most important over-the-counter market in the world as measured by booking location. And London, including Canary Wharf, is at the center of that activity. London alone accounted for nearly half the UK growth in this business between 1995 and 2001. And the average daily turnover, daily turnover in the UK in 2001 was 275 billion pounds, more than any other country in the world, including the United States. Second, the Docklands now is a vibrant commercial center. Given the sheer size of the businesses run from Canary Wharf, we can argue that it once again plays a vital role in the UK economy. As we all know, the UK's economy historically has been dominated by commerce, by trade, and by manufacturing, which in turn relied on trade for materials and access to foreign markets. Docklands played an important role in London's position as a major UK and international port, whereas today it plays an important role in London's position as one of the major capital markets of the world. Tall office buildings, the present symbols of commerce, have replaced forests of masts and cranes, the historical symbols of shipping, trade, and commerce. To give you some indication of the scale of this business, let's look at, the, at London, which includes the city and the Docklands. As mentioned earlier, London is one of the three dominant capital markets in the world, the other two being New York and Japan, Tokyo. But while these two great cities have a large volume in domestic activity, London has the largest share in most of the important international financial markets, such as foreign equity trading, international bond issuance and secondary trading, foreign exchange, marine and aviation insurance, and cross-border lending. For example, in 2002, London's share of the foreign equity markets, measured by turnover, was more than double that of the United States, all of the United States. The same was true for foreign exchange and OTC derivatives dealing. London has a 60% share of the international primary bond market and a staggering 70% of, its, of the international secondary market. All of this activity is now conducted in the city and by the companies that have moved to the Docklands. If we look at GDP contribution, London is, as a whole, not just the city, is a major contributor to the UK GDP, contributing 18% of total GDP. Finance and business services sectors generate more than 40% of London's output. And remember what types of firms have located in the Docklands, financial and business services companies. According to International Financial Services London, also or previously known as British Invisibles, London's economy on its own is similar in size to that of Switzerland or Argentina. Financial services alone account for more than 5% of GDP, and they employ more than 1 million people, including over 300,000 people in Greater London. All elements of the financial services sector that I've just mentioned are present in the Docklands. It's home to banks, foreign exchange dealers, insurance companies and brokers, fund managers, and securities dealers. I've mentioned the international nature of our employees and others who work at Canary Wharf, but we all know that the Docklands has long been an area rich in international links with people from many different countries. The same is true today. Whether it's evidenced in the lifts at my office, or in the multitude of languages spoken outside any one of the schools in the Docklands area. The businesses that have moved to the Docklands, particularly into Canary Wharf, 
are themselves thriving international companies or driving an international business. On a personal note, if we look at Morgan Stanley's business as a proxy for other financial services firms in the area, not only do we have an extraordinary rich mix of cultures, but we conduct business in dozens of countries from our offices in the wharf. That business alone represents almost 20% of Morgan Stanley's $19 billion in global revenues and continues to grow as a proportion of the whole every year. When we moved to Canary Wharf in December 1991, we were not only an investor but one of the early arrivals. We were the second tenants to move to Canary Wharf. We had about 1,200 employees and occupied less than 250,000 square feet. Today, we have 5,000 employees. They're located in 1.1 million square feet of space. That's out of a total of 6 million square feet of office and retail space currently available or currently occupied in Canary Wharf. There are an additional 8.1 million square feet currently under construction in Canary Wharf and the surrounding area. When we moved down to the wharf, the working population in Canary Wharf was less than 5,000, so less than the people that now work at Morgan Stanley. Today, there are more than 55,000 people working there, about a 700% increase in a 10-year period. Current estimates are that in the broader Docklands area, within, there will be more than 175,000 people working there within the next 10 years, 75,000 more than were working at the original docks at their peak in the 1930s. But let's be clear. It would be misleading to say that our move to Canary Wharf was a smooth ride from the outset. In fact, the move was described at the time as pioneering and risky. We'd been located in the area just north of Oxford Street for many years, having moved from the city, although we occupied eight buildings. Our employees didn't like the separation of operations, the distance to travel, but they did like the proximity of shopping and other, other amenities in the area. Although the move to Canary Wharf would enable us to bring together in one building all our staff, we were very concerned about losing staff who were going to have to move to this white elephant, particularly in light of the very poor transport services and the lack of basic amenities. As a result, at Morgan Stanley, we put together a package of incentives for our employees that included free parking, since the only way to get to the wharf easily was, by, was to drive, a cafeteria with heavily subsidized food, bonuses for staying with us and making the move, and our own transportation system. Transport's always been an issue at the wharf. Remember my earlier comments about how cut off from the rest of London the area has been despite physical proximity. The same was true in spades when we moved down in 1991. The Docklands Light Railway, or DLR for short, was unreliable. There was no Limehouse Link Road for easy access to the wharf. You had to drive down narrow and congested lanes, including the aptly named Narrow Street, and there obviously was no Jubilee Line extension. So we took matters into our own hands and in a matter of a few short weeks created our own bus service from our office to all major stations, including Kings Cross, Waterloo, Liverpool Street, and Paddington. This service ran 50 buses in the morning and evening at 10-minute intervals with 12 stops around London. In fact, at the time, this meant we were the largest private bus operating company in London. The service was so successful and efficient and had been set up so quickly 
that it even caused the then Minister for Transport, Roger Freeman, to come and come frequently and see what lessons the government could learn for public bus services. Unclear whether they learned any lessons. Today, transportation is vastly improved with good road connections and updated DLR and the addition of the Jubilee Line extension, which has transformed commuting into the area. It's no longer true to say that the Docklands is isolated from the rest of London. It's taken its place as part of the heart of London. And with improved transportation and a thriving business community have come the sorts of amenities that we only dreamed of a decade ago. Where there was only a newspaper store, a chocolate shop, a chocolate shop? A cafe, a card shop, a card shop? And gourmet pizza. We spent a lot of time in gourmet pizza. Today, there are 200 shops and restaurants in Canary Wharf alone, not only for the people who work there, but also for people who live there and who come from other parts of Greater London to shop there. Some of the biggest names in retailing are now present, including Waitrose, Marks and Spencers, Tesco, HMV, and Boots, even Hackett and Thomas Pink for that certain city look. Not surprisingly, in addition to the planners and politicians that have been coming for 17 years, they've come to see this significant re regeneration project. But the Docklands continues to attract more than 2.5 million visitors every year. It is quite a remarkable place today, just as it must have been when the merchants put up all that money to build the original docks. With good transportation links, beautiful surroundings, a wide array of shops and entertainment, this is a very nice place to work, to visit, and increasingly to live. The visionaries of 20 years ago have succeeded with the help of countless businesses and investors in creating a city center and urban life, not a sterile office park or a faceless industrial park or a cold suburban shopping mall. What's been achieved is far more than the Wall Street on the water envisaged two, de two decades ago. It's a vibrant cityscape. So let me close with a word about the future. It would be wrong for me to leave you today with the impression that the Docklands will only get better. We face many challenges. The difficult economic conditions have been a challenge for developers and investors alike. And difficult economic conditions will continue to come and go. At Canary Wharf, this cycle is reflected in the supply and demand of office and retail space. Security risks mean that we live in a world radically changed by September 11th. And as a result, many people are reconsidering the attractiveness of high-density, single-sector or sector-heavy developments. Social and economic deprivation is still an issue in parts of the Docklands. So more resources and innovative thinking and the help of those businesses who currently make their home in the Docklands will be needed. And outsourcing, whether to India or Scotland, means growth in the Docklands cannot be like trees and grow to the sky. So what will the businesses of the future be, and will we and the Docklands be ready for them? But one thing is now certain, and that is that city planners agree that this is an area that can and should be developed further. The bid for the Olympics is all about this. And even if the bid ultimately is unsuccessful, the whole nature of the London planning discussion has changed and shifted the focus so that the West now meets the East. So let me leave you with a thought from another age of commerce and growth and quote from Virgil's Aeneid. These success encourages. 
they can because they think they can. Thank you. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.